welcome to the premiere episode of Digest Cast, a podcast dedicated to the belief that big things come in small packages. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly, and we're a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Rob, we're here. We're finally here. How exciting is this? This is very exciting. This was a, a notion I had a little while back, and then we've turned it into a, a whole show. This is only our third show together. Not our third show collectively, but we've right. only done Fire and Water and Who's Who and now this. It's very exciting. I, um, For those of you at home, just so you know, I bullied my way onto the show. Uh, Rob had <laughs> absolutely that. no intention of offering me uh, a, a role, and I basically said, no, 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 I'm, I'm doing this with you. And he's like, wait, no, 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 this is how this is happening. Really? Yeah, here's the commercial. Uh, let's get a theme going. Here's some artwork, you know, and yeah, so. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> that is exactly how it went down. <laughs> I'm not kidding. So it's sort of funny. This is sort of the antithesis, really, to the Treasury cast, wouldn't you say? It is. Uh, as anyone knows, I'm a big fan of the big Treasury comics. I have a whole show devoted to them. But I, but as, as, as anybody who's been reading my blogs over the years knows, I'm just a fan of different formats. And so I love the Digest, too. Like, Treasuries are always going to be my favorite. But I love the Digest, so I'm perfectly happy to have a whole show devoted to them because they deserve it. And obviously, we are not alone because when we mentioned it, oh my boom, gosh, boom! I mean, people really got excited. There was yeah a lot of pre-feedback on this show, yeah. folks. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Now, if you're not familiar with the Digest, we're going to talk a little bit about them. But they're these fun little pocket-sized things. The ones we're primarily going to be talking about are from the 1970s and 80s. And uh, fair to say, Rob's passion probably lies more on the DC side because he's a DC kid. And they're were, were they all 100 pages or just most of them? Most, but some were a little shorter. Okay. Yeah. And um, they're they're so you know why don't we why don't we just start it up like Rob. When, when did the first Digest actually come out? I mean, do you know the history on these things? Okay. Uh, there isn't a whole lot of, like, info on them, unfortunately, and I would love to find these things out. But as far as I can tell, the first comic book Digest that anybody ever really did was uh, Gold Key did Walt Disney Comics Digest in 1968. And uh, that's the earliest one I can find. And they put out a couple other titles. They did Golden Comics Digest, and they did uh, the – Oh, I forget. There was like the Mystery Comics Digest, which were these sort of, you know, omnibus books. Those were in the early 60s. And they, yeah, Gold Key basically had the field to itself for a couple of years. DC tried to get into them briefly in 1972. They ran ads for two digests, Tarzan Digest and Laurel and and Hardy. Because, you know, kids in the 70s love Laurel and Hardy. Uh, (laughs) I did. (laughs) Yeah, as as far as anyone can tell, the Laurel and Hardy one never actually came out. Like okay. they, they ran an ad for it, but they never published it. The Tarzan one does exist because I have it. It features uh, all these old Tarzan reprints by Joe Kubert and some other great stuff. Uh, and then DC kind of didn't do any more digest again for like seven or eight more years. And then they went crazy with them, releasing like three different series, all of, four actually series mm. all at once. And that's when they really took off. Marvel never really did them at all until 1987, at which point DC had given them up. And Marvel basically used their big guns in terms of licensing, which were at the time G.I. Joe and Transformers, and they did Spider-Man Comics Magazine, which, uh, as Chris Franklin loves to complain about the flexographic printing process, (laughs) that magazine is the single worst example of the flexographic printing ever in history. I mean, those, those those books are unreadable. They're so poorly printed. 
I've done some searching on eBay for some of the Marvel ones because I, you know, I've, I've now, well, as we'll get into, I've acquired a lot of the DC ones. I wanted some of the Marvel ones, and all I could ever find was Spider-Man. Yeah. And that was about it. Now, our buddy Jared Albrecht, uh, the yard sale artist, actually sent me, he, he texted me a picture of himself with like a handful of G.I. Joe ones. He was so excited. <laughs> they look great. And, uh, you know, Kyle Benning's been telling us that we should do some Transformers ones as well. So uh, how how you feel about doing that, Rob, by the way? I'm going to be uh, out that week. Right. <laughs> Whatever week you're doing them, I'm going to be out there. Now, just to give you guys, if you don't, if you're still having trouble picturing a digest, I mean, you've seen them, guys. You've seen them in the grocery store. The Archie Comics Digest yes. are basically what we're talking about. I'm holding a ruler to mine here right now. It's, uh, you know, a normal comic is, is, is of a, lar- a fairly large format, what, like eight and a half by seven or something like that. This okay. is uh, six and three quarters inches. By five inches, so it's you know it's a nice smaller size. Would it actually fit in your pocket? We call it pocket size. Maybe the back pocket of your jeans. That's probably about it. If it was the seventies, um, maybe. <laughs> it was bigger pockets back then. That's right. Now, when did Archie get in the game? Archie started in 1973 and never looked back. Uh, they're still doing them to this day. Uh, I would love to do. I would love to find out like the whole history of that of like the yeah. Archie Digest because Archie got into the supermarkets early. And that real estate is basically owned by them. In fact, I had a conversation once with uh, Paul Kupperberg about digests because he's worked for, of course, everybody. And Mm -hmm. he said part of the reason that DC doesn't get into supermarkets if they decided to do digests again is because Archie is not giving up that turf. (laughs) They they own it lock, stock, and barrel, and that's basically never going to change. Uh, because the, the 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 Archie Digests are just a staple of the supermarket checkout lines, and so that's why they managed they managed to still be doing them almost fifty years later. I can't tell you how many of these damn things I've bought because my kids are in the grocery store with me and they see a comic book, yep. and it's not because of me. I mean, I'm not the because my cat my comic book addiction. That's not the catalyst. It's oh look, fun comics right here, yep. and we go to the grocery store every week. Like, Can I have that? And then they don't freaking end up reading all hundred pages. But um, so it, it's cool to see that they're still out there. I mean, that's that's a yep. pretty now. It's fair to say, and and, you're, and now this is where Rob starts to turn up his nose and become a snob. It's fair to say Marvel and DC are are publishing digests again, but not the same format. Um, I, I'll talk a little bit about the Marvel. You can talk a little about the DC, but like Marvel's been publishing these books that are more what you would call uh, maybe manga sized. You know, right. they're yeah. they're a little bit larger. They're some of them are thicker than 100 pages. They're a little bit better paper. They're not quite as disposable. They're more like trade paperbacks, but a little smaller. They're like manga size. They, they were probably brought back to compete with the manga market, actually. Now, DC has – I'll talk about some specific ones in a minute because I own several of those. But now, DC's doing some of this too, as I understand. Is that right? They did some. Uh, in the early aughts, they did a whole bunch. They did Batman Adventures, Superman Adventures, Justice League Unlimited – Teen mm-hmm. Titans Go, and basically all the cartoon-related stuff. And they were, yeah, right. they're, they're manga size, except they're thinner. Like, page count, they're, they were probably only, like, 80 or 90 pages. But I, I counted them as digests. And when I went around, when I was still doing my Digest Comics blog as an active thing, I counted them. Because to me, mm. they're, they're, the okay. form, they're, they're in the format. I, I would say the Marvel ones are, are pretty much manga. They're, they're so much thicker. They're taller. Like, to me, there's enough format difference that I kind of don't count them. But... You know, hey, let's not uh, let's not build fences here. <laughs> there you go. Let's let's bring people together. Thank so, you. so what is your personal history with digest? Like, what what's your earliest memory of having a digest? Do you know what the first one you had was? Do you have a do you have a favorite one? Anything like that? 
I don't remember when I first got them, but I mean, and I've mentioned before when I was a kid that I bought comics at Seven Eleven and and at that one newsstand, uh, which is the place where I got the Justice League number two hundred, and I bought the um, spinner rack from. That's, mm-hmm. That store is still around. And that was the only store in the area that ever carried the Digest. Like 7-Eleven didn't carry them. So anytime my dad took me to this store, which was called the uh, Voorhees News and Tobacco Shop. Um, so creepy. Jason. Know, yeah. Well, it's the town. Um, but, uh, but anytime we went there and they had a Digest, I bought it. So mm. my Digest collection as a kid was spotty because I didn't always go to that store. But if they had one, I picked it up. And in terms of what are some of my favorites – we're going to cover one of those in this episode. What am I? Oh, that's nice. Very cool. All right. Uh, for me as a kid, other than, okay, I, I honestly don't remember ever having digest as a kid. I don't remember owning any of them. I, ha- I assume I had to have owned an Archie digest probably just because the convenience of it, but I don't remember ever owning a Marvel or DC digest. In fact, the very first digest I remember buying, I bought myself, uh, at age 14, I bought it in the convenience store, the same convenience store where I used to buy my comics and where I bought my very first comic as a collector. So I bought uh, a digest that I thought was just about the coolest thing ever and decided I was going to start buying these regularly. I bought Best of DC number 71, which was <laughs> – yeah, there's a story there – which was the year's best comic stories, 1986. It had in it – Ambush Bug, it had Blue Devil, it had Mogo Doesn't Socialize. Now, it also had Omega Men, but we won't talk about that. Um, so, Rob, what would be the problem with me buying Best of DC number 71 and deciding I'm going to start buying these? <laughs> because you find out on the inside cover that it's the last digest that DC is going to publish. <laughs> exactly correct. Talk about getting out of the bandwagon late. <laughs> So uh, I still treasure it. I love it. I, I've had it all these years. It's been on my bookshelf. Um, it was the only digest I owned. Uh, I went on an insane buying spree on eBay. I don't want to tell you how much I paid for all these things. I did the math. I averaged it out. Uh, I now, Well, first of all, I, I now am the proud owner of 33 digests from DC Comics, which is what? That's a... Uh, Almost a, almost a quarter of the of the catalog, I think, right? Um, rough numbers. Yeah, I'd say that's probably about right. It's like 120 of them or something, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I and on average, I, the math worked out. I paid about five bucks a digest. So <laughs> if you want to get in the game, go on eBay. There's a lot of uh, quote unquote lots that are out there. There's a lot of finds you can do. What are you laughing at me for? That dark mansion of forbidden love really threw off the curve. <laughs> Jeez, oh, Pete, Dark Mansions of Forbidden Love. <laughs> Son of a biscuit, that thing. Some people are selling it for $90. I kid you not. Those people are high. That's ridiculous. It's not worth that kind of money. <laughs> and I was in an auction where I was about to get the thing for like, I don't know, $3. I was like freaking out. And then literally in the last five seconds, someone snaked me, came in and did 25 bucks. And then apparently, I don't know, I, I think it was the guy who owned it probably did it himself. Because then I get an email like a day or two later going, um, if you want to buy it, you still can. So I got it for 25 But It was the I, seller I, was like R underscore daily yeah. <laughs> 75 or something. <laughs> Bastard. But uh, I feel pretty good at getting it for 25 I don't know. So I, I never want to pay that much for a comic again. No. But uh, and, and with that guarantees we damn well better cover it on the show, by the way. <laughs> for the we amount will. Of money That's I a good one. Up. That's a really good one. I, yeah, and it's Yes. I, I have a lot to say about that one, so we absolutely will okay. get to that one. Cool. And it's uh, romance stuff, so maybe we should talk to Cisco. Um, Let's not go crazy. You know, by the way, we should mention we are going to have some guests on the show from time to time. So, uh, I mean, nobody we probably like, but, you know, we'll figure it out as we go. <laughs> uh, I did buy some more digests, by the way, in my in my college years. I bought some of the Adventure Comics digests. Oh, and I love those. 
those are great. And I've talked about a friend of mine named Ravenface on this show before. He was my best buddy growing up. Um, and, and Rob, you and I have talked about Ravenface before. Anyway, uh, he was a huge Legion collector, Legion of Superheroes collector. And I bought the die, these Adventure Comics digest for the Aquaman stories, right? So he comes along. I think it was the same day I got them. I don't really remember. And he goes over and he's, again, huge Legion of Superheroes collector. And he looks at my digest. He goes, oh, I'll be having these and just takes them. <laughs> and if you know my friend Simon at all, or Ravenface, uh, that's just how life works with him. And I, I just rolled over and said, okay. And I never had him again until a few weeks ago. So now I have some adventure comics again. Wow, don't let him near your wife. <laughs> Tell you, he's a charming bastard, too, that guy. So so uh, m- more modern day. Speaking of the more the modern day digest, digest that Rob t- turns his nose, nose up at, uh, I personally have purchased a whole bunch of the Marvel ones, uh, specifically for my kids. I bought the Power Pack digest. I don't know if you remember a couple years ago, Marvel did a kid-friendly Power Pack series. And basically what they would do is they would do little miniseries, four-issue miniseries, and they were really capitalizing on the movies. So it would be like Power Pack and the Avengers. Power Pack and Spider-Man, Power Pack and Spider-Man, Power Pack and Thor. Did I say Spider-Man twice? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Power Pack and Man-Thing? Did they do that? uh, They didn't do Man-Thing, although there was that TV movie, wasn't there? They did do uh, Secret Invasion, where they fought the Skrulls. But anyway, they they had a total of 11 of these things. I have them each one. uh, I'm crazy. I have the individual issues and the digest. I love them that much. They're, They're all ages, super friendly. If you've got kids... Go out there, find the Power Pack Digest. They're perfect for kids, especially since they probably already know these characters from the movies. Oh, they're absolute joy. I love them. I treasure them. I treasure my Digest. Look at that. that. Yes. Yep. They also then, did, they also did the um, Franklin Richards ones, which are that, terrific. That's the other one I was going to mention. Oh, okay. I, I, I well, it's okay. I, I, just, I have some of the Franklin Richards ones, and um, the other ones that I'm a big fan of are the Runaways. You know, Brian mm-hmm. K. Vaughn did that series, Runaways, and they published those as digests. And uh, I, when we get to in-stock trades, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But that's how I read the Runaway series was through digests, and I love it. And it's the it's the perfect thing to put in a teenager's hands, you know. When when you got a like, I have a 16 year old, a 17 year old son who's reading different stuff. But the perfect thing to put in a teenager's hands because you know it's all about teenage angst, and so that sort of thing. They're they're. I kind of call them modern-day X-Men, whatever, but that's the perfect kind of format to give a kid to read. So Runaways Digest and Power Pack Digest could not uh, recommend them enough. So Now, I sort of indicated uh, in-stock trades. We should probably go ahead and do that. Folks, this episode of the Digest Cast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com, your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, uh, all for up to 42% off. Rob, what do you have? Uh, I mentioned that uh, DC did do some digests, Superman, Batman, and they are available on InStock Trades. But another one I want to talk about is Secret of the Swamp Thing, which is a manga-sized collection of the original Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson stories, which are, of course, being covered by Ryan Daly over on It's Midnight, the podcasting hour. This is a great little book. The paper is kind of like not high quality, but it's not super slick, so it's like a really nice little package. It's $9.99, 232 pages. Insuck trades price is only $5.79. That's 42% off. Yeah. So for six bucks, you get the first 10 issues of the original Swamp Thing, which I still say are some of the greatest comics ever done. So that is totally worth it. It's a great little book, Secret of the Swamp Thing. I may have to get that because I realized listening to the re- most recent episode of It's Midnight uh, when they're talking about Swamp Thing, I've never read those early 
issues of Swamp Thing. I, I certainly have read the House of Secrets, you know, the very first Swamp Thing right. story. I mean, everyone has a reprint of that. I think they issued that in the 90s to every kid, uh, like, you know, forced labor sort of thing. That you had to take it. But uh, I've never read those other ones, so that might be the oh, way to go. So good. Now, does it look good, you think, in the smaller format? I mean, because Bernie Wrightson's art is really detailed. Yeah, no, it looked great. Um, I th- effectively, you know, uh, I think Bernie Wrights and stuff lost a little something on newsprint because he put a lot of detail, and I think a lot of the colors dropped out. So it was mm. nice getting on this nice paper. I get. Cool. I'm, not, I'm not big on the super slick paper, like yeah. that stuff, like all those Marvel reprints they did. I think they lose something looking like that. But this is like a nice middle step. Uh, Very cool. The two formats. It's a great. It's a really nice, solid little book. Awesome. Well, uh, I'm also recommending a digest. I, I, I talked about it earlier. Runway, Runaways, uh, specifically Runaways Trade Paperback Volume Two, Teenage Wasteland Digest. Uh, I would recommend Volume One. It's not on in stock trades right now. However, ironically, I started with Volume Two. Uh, somehow I didn't read Volume 1 first. I started with Volume 2 and fell in love with it. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with starting Volume 2, folks. If you've never run Runaways, uh, read Runaways, uh, written by Bron K. Vaughn, a few different artists. The gist of it is these ki- these are kids, teenagers, who find out they are the children of supervillains. And they kind of go on the run, and it's their adventures. This one involves Cloak and Dagger. It's a really fun story with really adorable characters. Um, in fact, I want to say I heard Runaways is being adapted for something, maybe uh, animation, film, something. I don't know. Anyway, um, page count, 152 pages, full color. Normally, like the like the digest you talked about, normally retails for $9.99. In stock trades price is 42% off, so only $5.79. And you can get, I think, volumes two through seven out on in-stock trades right now. Order them. You will not be sorry, folks. They are really fun reading. I, I enjoy them quite a bit. So, again, go to InStockTrades.com. Now, um, I have a question for you, Rob. And this is just posing a question for the future, thinking ahead here. Other than G.I. Joe number one, is there anything else that appear that you can think of that appeared as a regular comic, a digest, and a treasury? Uh, ooh, appeared as a regular comic, a digest, and a – I know obviously there's the answer is yes because otherwise you wouldn't have asked me. But Well, no, no. I don't have a trick. This isn't, this isn't one of oh. those traps that I'm trying to make you fall into. I think maybe Legion? Maybe? No, mm, no. Well, there were several Legion digests, right? But they so, didn't weren't. Well, they reprinted different stories. I don't. I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of the GI Joe digest, so I wonder okay. if they didn't do GI Joe number one as a digest. I don't know because they did it as a treasury. It certainly is a regular book. Well, they did GI Joe as digest, so I would assume number right. they must have done number one. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know. Well, it'd be interesting if we could find some stuff that were done as all three, and you know, maybe we have our own built-in crossover on the network or something, yeah, or yeah, whatever. Huh. And then, <laughs> the last thing I'm going to say before we start on this one, I'm embarrassed to say I am an old man, and I wear glasses, and my doctor's been trying to get me to move to, what do you call those, transitions or whatever, bifocal type stuff, and I, I told him, hell no. And he said, well, get yourself a pair of readers and use those when you need them. And I, up to this point, I've owned them now for like two years. Up to this point, I've never needed the readers. Guess what? (laughs) (laughs) For my first Digest cast, I had to bust out the readers to read this damn thing (laughs) because I'm old. And uh, I'm glad I did because it it made everything bigger and I got to enjoy the gorgeous artwork that much more. Professor Shagstein. (laughs) Uh, You want to tell the people at home what we're covering? Well, before we get to that, we should thank our composer <gasps> for our theme, yes. our pal Luke Dobb, who did Woo-hoo. such a good job on Treasury Cast. And what was the other theme that he did for us? I'm blanking out. What's the other one? Uh, it's, it's Saturday Morning Fever. 
Saturday morning fever. Yes, yes. He did such a good job. We asked him to do digest cast, and Shag had an idea of going very different than what we had on Treasury Kiss. He wanted something kind of jazzy and a little 60s-ish, kind of Johnny Quest, uh, Henry Mancini, Secret Agent Man. And so Luke, of course, delivered, as he always does, this wonderfully catchy, again, little jazzy, exciting theme. It's the kind of theme that makes me want to kind of like stand on the prow of a speedboat and like karate chop a guy. Like, yeah, it's, exactly. It's that kind of feeling. Yeah, and it, it, there's also echoes of Batman Brave and the Bold and, you know, Pink Panther, Mission Impossible, James Bond. It's all there. It's all, you know, action spy stuff. I love it. It's so great. So thank you so much for that, Luke. It, it met my expectations and far exceeded them. Super cool. Yeah, it really gives you a boost when you start a new show to have, like, a really great theme. That's such a nice – it's – I mean, it's not like you can't do a show without a theme. You can, like, do it later. But to have that theme, it, for me at least, it really kind of, like, get your get your – Juices flowing. You're like, oh man, I can't wait to drop this in, and then hope I don't screw it up by talking over it. Well, I was just thinking the poor listener gets to hear the awesome theme, and then they get us. Yeah, well, <laughs> can't all be winners. There you go. But this book's a winner. Yes, this book is absolutely a winner. The, the one we're covering in question is the best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest number 21, cover dated February 1982, and it is a collection of stories featuring the Justice Society of America. One of Woo! Shag's favorites, one of my favorites, features a brand new cover by George Perez and features three JSA story. Well, two JSA stories and another Earth's Two story. Uh, this is one of my favorites. I bought this specific one at the aforementioned Voorhees News and Tobacco, Jason Voorhees News and Tobacco Shop. Uh, I still, <laughs> I still have the same copy that I bought in 1982. Uh, oh that's gosh. how much I loved it. So this this is absolutely one of my favorites. So when Shag and I were talking about where we wanted to start, I, I said, please, let's let's do this one because I absolutely love this book. Now, I've said this on various podcasts before, but I'll say it again. When I first got into the whole blogging world, uh, my first direction wasn't Firestorm. I, it wasn't going to be Firestorm fan. It was actually going to be a JSA blog because I love the JSA that much. Uh, turns out there was already so many great JSA stuff out there. I felt like I'd just be lost in a sea of other people. <laughs> Nobody was supporting Firestorm, so I went that route instead. But uh, JSA, I, when you suggested I was just thrilled to do it. Um, now, you were talking about you bought it in 1982. You might not have well, because 1981, actually. November 5th. 1981 was the on-shelf date, according to Mike's uh, Amazing World of Comics. Now, interestingly enough, the back of mine actually has a, a stamp, like you do at a library in the old days when you do you know the card checkout process. Uh, it actually stamped November 13th. So apparently someone got this uh, a little bit later than November 5th. I don't know what that's about, but you know, somebody's keeping track of when they get their stuff. And uh, now, just to put this in a little historical perspective, because it does say right across the top, 100 pages of all-star action. And, of course, that's a reference to the old all-star comics. However, at this time, the all-star squadron series was already on the shelves. Uh, All-Star Squadron was on issue number five. So I got to wonder if editor Len Wein was sort of like looking at what was selling well at DC. And they're like, hey, you know, this All-Star Squadron's been on the shelf for five months. They're probably just now getting sales data back going, hey, this thing's kind of a hit. Let's do a digest quick. Capitalize on it. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. But uh, we're going to – you're going to back me up now and say, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah, that's probably it. Okay, perfect. Now, you mentioned the Perez cover. We're going to talk about that in a second here. But Perez, connection to all this, at this point, JLA on the shelves was issue 199. So Perez had just finished his run on JLA, getting ready for your beloved JLA 200. Mm -hmm. But he had just done his, what, Earth 2? 
crossover, right? The, the yeah, 197? the 195 through 197, which is a three-part JLA yeah. JSA team-up. Wonderful story. So he had just recently brushed up against the JSA, so this was a nice return to it. So, um, All right, so the, you, you want to describe the cover to these people? Yeah, the cover is our heroes Superman, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Green Lantern, Spectre, Batman, Adam, Dr. Fate, and The Flash working on a giant stone eagle with an American uh, shield and it's uh, sort of as like a breastplate. And I am no, – first of all, of course it's beautifully drawn because it's by George Perez in 1982. But uh, I am a sucker for any cover of the heroes like doing some sort of social activity. Mm-hmm. And I don't – I love those covers. And this you've got Superman, Wonder Woman, Hawkman, Dr. Fate, and the Flash and Green Lantern all kind of you know forming the rock. Uh, Hawkman, mm-hmm. Hawkman's got a chisel. Flash has got a chisel. Wonder Woman has a chisel. Superman's is hitting using his hands. Meanwhile, Batman and Adam are going over a schematic, and Spectre is just sort of standing off the background, just sort of supervising, I guess. But uh, I, this cover just makes me happy. It's just everything that I like about superhero comics. They're all being a team. They're all getting along. They're hanging out together. It's got all these great characters. I, I just, it just, uh, just warms the cockles of my cold dead heart. It is a beautiful cover, and I love when they do something patriotic, especially you know, JSA was so World War II, rah-rah America. Seeing them do something patriotic like this just is wonderful. It makes you feel proud to be an American. Um, now, this cover was repurposed years later for – I want to say it was a back issue magazine, wasn't it? Uh, that's news to me. I don't know. Uh, uh, someone write in tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure they reused this for a back issue because I've seen this before on something I own, so I'm pretty sure it's back issue because uh, it's, it's just stunning. And Perez did an amazing job. Everyone's likeness is perfect. Doctor Fate's doing onks. You know, it's really awesome. Now I ask you, and this is more for fun than anything else, but who's missing? Well, a lot of people. Yeah. Our yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. So our man, Rex Tyler, right? Owner of a chemical company. Okay. Sand, Keep sand, going. Sandman. Wesley Dodds, independently wealthy. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, Black Canary. I mean, it depends yep. how far into the JSA you want to get. You could say okay. uh, Star Spangled Kid or Power Girl or any. All right. I'll, I'll go where I'm going with this. Ted Knight, Starman. Wow, right? Oh, right. Oh. Ted Starman. Ted, Ted Knight. Grant, yeah. Starman. In, independently. Uh, in Ted Knight, independently wealthy. Wesley Dodds, as you mentioned. Indi- uh, I'm sorry. No, you didn't. Dead. So Wesley Dodds, Sandman, independently wealthy. Dr. Charles McKnighter, very successful doctor, wealthy. Uh, Dr. Midnight. Terry Sloan, Mr. Terrific, also extremely wealthy. Rex Tyler, the Hour Man, very wealthy. What this is is all the rich guys couldn't show up to do the work. <laughs> And you notice the other rich guy that's on the cover, Batman, is just ordering everyone around. So really, this is sort of like the 1% is doing all the work. I'm just, you know, or the 90, I'm sorry, the 99% is doing all the work. The 1% just couldn't be bothered. So that's my take on it. Never mind Johnny Thunder and Black Canary Wildcat. Let's just not count them at all. But, um, nobody's, I was missing, having... nobody's missing Johnny Thunder. In fact, Johnny Thunder is trapped under the rock. That they're they don't care. <laughs> Actually, when, when they do a story here with Johnny Thunder, he sort of like disappears for chunks of the story, which is kind of funny. And then the show, I forget that he's in there. I'm like, oh, Johnny Thunder's in this? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. Well, there's three stories reprinted. So um, The Origin of the Justice Society, which uh, appeared in DC Special number 29. Right. And um, what was that, like 1979 or something like 77, that? 77, I believe. Okay. DC special series. Yeah, it's from DC DC special number 29, The Untold Origin of the Justice Society by Paul Levitz and the unbeatable art team of Joe Staten and Bob Layton at Rhymes. Uh, letterer, <laughs> letterer Bill Morse, colorist Anthony Tollin, and it says they dedicate this tale to Gardner Fox and Shelley Mayer, who started it all in All-Star Comics number 30 
winter 1940. And the opening splash page is a nice group shot of all of our heroes, of every member of the Justice Society. Yep. Uh, really even, cool. even Red Tornado poking out in the back. Even two Red, red, red Tomato and Red Tornado. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. It's great. So anyway, the, uh, this is, and the story unfolds like this. On a rainy night, an unknown man plays a visit to the White House, where President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, just elected to an unprecedented third term, awaits. The man bears bad news that Adolf Hitler is planning to invade England within weeks. Roosevelt, mindful of his promise to keep America out of the war unless attacked, offers a solution in the form of photos of various costume heroes that have been popping up across the country in the last few months. Chapter 1 takes place in Gotham, where Batman, Flash, and Green Lantern answer a summons to meet by the same man we saw with Roosevelt. Soon there, our heroes are on their way to Scotland, where they attack a castle the Nazis have claimed. They are met and defeated by a giant Nazi robot. In Salem, Massachusetts, Dr. Fate watches these events unfold and decides to intervene. On his way, he grabs our man to assist him. In Berlin, Hitler himself is about to unmask Batman when, he's, when he is interrupted by Dr. Fate. Hitler uses the Sword of Destiny to call down an army of Valkyries who fight our heroes. Dr. Fate calls up for reinforcements, bringing in Sandman, Hawkman, and Adam. The fight continues, but things look grim for our heroes when an entire Nazi fleet arrives. But at the same time, our heroes are then joined by the all-powerful Spectre. With this added help, the heroes make quick work of the Nazis and then chase after the Valkyries. The battle rages for hours in the sky, going on for so long that our heroes find themselves over Washington, D.C. just as dawn uh, approaches. The Flash spots a Nazi bomber about to attack the Capitol, but then the plane is smashed by one more hero, Superman. In the melee, the head Valkyrie makes her way to the Oval Office. She pauses and is about to strike down FDR when suddenly the Atom jumps in, taking the brunt of the blow. Superman puts the Valkyrie in a chokehold, but she disappears in an instant thanks to her magical powers. FDR thanks the heroes and remarks what a great team they would make, perhaps some sort of super battalion. Superman suggests a less warlike name, the Justice Society of America. And the story ends with the narrator informing us that in the winter of 1940, Adolf Hitler abandoned plans to invade England, and no one knows why, except for ten heroes who formed a team that day and would go on to become a legend. And that is the secret origin of the Justice Society of America. Woohoo! Awesome. Now, I have to ask, how did you possibly get through that entire thing without doing an FDR impersonation once? I thought we would try and, you know, turn over a new leaf. It's a new show, and I want to ruin, <laughs> force everybody to hear my FDR impression. Well, I'm not turning it over a new leaf because I'm going to say the Valkyries are hot. Uh, they don't look very authentic, but they are very attractive. Because Joe Staten, man, I I was late to the party with Joe Staten because I saw his stuff in the 80s and wasn't necessarily thrilled. You know, the Millennium era, the Guy Gardner era, that kind of stuff. I wasn't a real big fan of it because he had a very stylized style at that point. Man, it wasn't until I'd read Showcase 100 where I realized how amazing Staten was in the 70s. I mean, the guy can draw the hell out of a comic book. And this thing is drawn just to the nth degree. It is so beautiful. Every character looks great. The shadows look great. You know, the inking is awesome. There's wonderful action everywhere. Dr. Fate's helmet looks great. Sandman. Everyone looks amazing in this book. Staten and Layton make a great team. I don't know if mm. they've ever did anything else together. But uh, they did a tremendous job together. And if you look on the last page of the story, they combine their last names in the signature. Oh, yeah. So it's like a stay Layton thing, which is <laughs> sort of like a Lennon-McCartney thing. This, this is – I mean I'm a huge fan of Joe Staten. I always have been. But I, this is probably my favorite art job of his because I think Layton was a perfect inker for him. And 
you know, I don't know why it was just this one-off story, as far as I can tell, but he kind of gives state, he reigns Staten in a little, so the cartooniness is a little dialed down. Uh, it, I, the, the storytelling is great. I love the pacing. I love how Superman is brought into it. He gets a full page to himself when he arrives. The great, there's a the great moment where he stops the Nazi bomb, and the way that uh, that is laid out, like Superman is literally catching the bomb inches before it hits the ground, and you really get the sense of, like, you know, this Superman is super strong, obviously, but he's not the Earth-1 Superman, where he's not right. completely invulnerable. So him stopping a bomb actually does require some effort. Mm-hmm. You get that sense, like it's really slowing him down a little. I, this this is this story is probably on my... I was just not going to take out probably. I would say this is my top ten single favorite issue stories of all time. I love wow. everything about this. And this was... The, I never... I didn't have DC special number 29. This I got this story for the first time in this digest. Oh, sweet. And this is where I learned about all these characters. And I remember looking really hard at the opening splash page of the team and trying to figure out, because I didn't have readers, who those guys are <laughs> in the background. Who's the guy with the bucket on his head? Who's the red guy? I didn't know who they were. And right. I love they're tucked in the background. So I was learning all sorts of stuff. This, I just, this story is, so, and this really probably was an early thing of like why I'm such like a 40s aficionado, because it's like the fashion and the cars and, FD, like just the idea that like you have a president that forms a super team, like how cool mm-hmm. is that? You know, it's just wow. like it's it just love it, love it, love it. Now I have some uh, some crow to it, eat here or admit, I guess or whatever. It's I was not a fan of this story for a long time. Uh, I am a post-crisis baby. For me, I didn't start reading DC Comics really till just before the crisis, and then my love of the JSA comes from post-crisis experiences, whether it's reading uh, Young All-Stars or reading, you know, the, 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 the I'm trying to say Parabek, the Parabek series, or looking back and reading All-Star Squadron, which really was, wasn't post-crisis, but there wasn't really the elements of Superman and Batman very much in there. They, they fit very easily into post-crisis because a lot of the same elements aren't in there. So for me, I had a hard time when I finally read this issue because I had already read Secret Origins number 31, which was a, a, a retelling of this without the you know Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman elements in it. and uh, Or not, I guess Wonder Woman's not in it, but you know, the Superman and Batman elements were taken out. And so when I read this, for me, it was like, oh, why is Superman in my JSA? I don't like that. It's not, doesn't, it's not, doesn't sit comfortably with me. And so I sort of turned my nose up at this for a long time. And because I don't, I, I, I read it, very late in the game because it was hard to find. But now, as a, a, a more nuanced and uh, welcoming to the pre-crisis elements, and after talking about this sort of through uh, the Secret Origins podcast, you remember Ryan Daly, that guy we used to know? Uh, I was on episode 31. Uh, I'm trying to recall yeah, the name. I don't... Vague, vague. Yeah, I know. I think he died. But anyway, um, I did an episode at 31 with myself, Ryan, Kyle Benning, and Al Gerding, and where we all talked about the post-crisis version of this story and this particular one, the pre-crisis version got brought up a lot. And so I was like, eh, I have to go back and read it. And now reading it again, it is stunning guys. It is absolutely gorgeous. I take back anything that I might've said negative about it or saying that I like the post-crisis version better. This is gorgeous. It's a beautiful piece. I love the pacing. There's some kooky crap. Don't get me wrong. I mean, like when, when, when they pull it, when, when Hitler grabs Batman and pulls his cowl off and there's another cowl underneath Batman's cowl, and now they explain it because of magic, but it's hysterical. It's just like goofy. And then I, I still question when Dr. Fate needs help. He says, you, you know, Dr. Fate needs help to fight the Nazis. He's going to get really powerful people to help him fight the Nazis. So he grabs our man, 
Yeah, really? <laughs> you know the atom will really tip this in our favor. Right. <laughs> we need more help. So he grabs Sandman, Hawkman, and Adam? What? Really? Doctor, I question Dr. Faye's judgment. I'm just saying, you know? <laughs> well, who's he going to get, Johnny Thunder? They want to win. Well, I mean, Spectre does show up, though, and freaking grab. I mean, Spectre is amazing. He's, he's, you know, the size of Godzilla, and he's grabbing, you know, battleships and shaking them apart, which is just amazing when Staten draws that. It's like, wow. Out, outside of uh, his run on, in Adventure Comics, the the Apero Michael Fleischer stories, which Ryan has been talking about over on his show, this features my favorite Spectre moment, where he just picks up a Nazi and stares him to death. Yeah, that's and true. You, as the Nazi peers into the eye of the Spectre, we see that the Spectre's eye is turned into a skull, and the Nazi just dies yep. right then and there. And I'm like, that's such a great little trick. I mean, we could use that nowadays. It's fantastic. I just love that moment. It's wordless. I love it. I love that, that even though Spectre is mowing down Nazis by the metric ton, he goes out of his way to, to put the whammy on this one guy. Yeah, it's powerful. And, you know, Ostringer and Mandrake do a lot of that in their run years later. Uh, it just sort of tells you how great this is. Now, I, I don't know that it's the first appearance of him ever using what Ghost Rider called the penance stare. But, yeah, it's really great in this issue. And then you get a hero moment where all the heroes come together, and there's actually a panel of them, like, making friends. You know, where, Yeah, they're all shaking the, hands and stuff. Yeah, I love yeah, it. For the, for the first time in any world's history, nine superheroes are gathered together in a moment of triumph and of impending doom. You know, it's... Super fun. Love this story. Really had a blast with it. Mm. I, I love that uh, Superman kills Nazis in this story. Does he? I don't know. Yeah, well, I... he smashes through the planes. I oh, mean, that's he, true. You see the guys with their parachutes, but I think he's killed a couple of them. I, he's certainly not caring about them at all. He's flying through the planes. Hey, you know, this is war. We don't have time for these niceties. We've got to kill these <laughs> Nazis. As, as they say on the internet, is it okay to punch a Nazi? Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's sort of funny to think about. This is written by Paul Levitz. You know, Roy Thomas gets all the blame slash praise, depending on your point of view, for, like, intertwining or retrofitting comic book events with history. But here's Paul Levitz doing it first. You know, I mean, he he's taking a real-world event, which was Hitler's uh, decision not to invade England when he could have, and retrofitting a reason to why I was going to say, that. is that based? I didn't know if that was based on reality or not. That's based on a real thing. Yes, Hitler. Okay. D- Hitler decided not to invade England when he could have, <laughs> and uh, they, you know, and, and I don't. I haven't done enough reading Rebel War II to know if at this point no one really quite knows why. Whether that's been discovered. I mean, this story is thirty years old at this point, so they may have discovered right. it since. But I. But here's Levitz, you know, sort of fitting a, you know, we- weaving his story into historical events, which I love. <laughs> You know, one of the things I found interesting too, and um, now this, I'm going in a different direction, I, not to take anything away from that, but I love that the JSA literally battles the Valkyries all the way across the Atlantic Ocean. And it's not like a five minute battle. They, all they basically night. Sit, it rages yeah, all night. Yeah. Exactly. This battle went on forever, you know, for, for a long, long time. And, and you got to wonder, like, how is Adam and Sandman keeping up with Green Lantern? Well, Green Lanterns create little platforms for them to stand on so they yep. can continue the fight against the Valkyries. So it's very impressive. And then I always loved in this story, even in the retelling, how the Adam sort of saved the president. Yes. How, you know, that was yes. his shining moment. Yes. Like, that's great. I love the thing about, you know, FDR is like, how did you survive? There's my FDR. There it like, is. How did you there survive? it is. And, and, and he says, don't you, don't you know you can't split an atom? I love that. <sighs> that's great. Like, but yeah, that's because, I mean, it is absurd that the atom would be on a team with Spectre, Dr. Fate, Greenland. I mean, the JSA is the most powerful super team ever, ever. 
because you've got Superman, Doctor Fate, Spectre, and Green Lantern. You, just those four by themselves. So the idea and that you, huh? And Doctor Fate. I said that. Apparently, I'm not good with the repeating of things today. But Doctor, go ahead. Doctor Fate, Spectre, Superman, and Green Lantern. Once you have okay. those four guys on your team, you're done. You don't need anybody else. So you really don't need a guy in a in a Lucador helmet and Lucador mask. <laughs> doing anything so i love that they gave him that moment i think that's a right. great little detail so well it shows his gumption and it shows that you know like you said he can be part of the team too yeah. so yeah, yeah. super yeah. fun i again I, superman and batman in here doesn't sit all that well with me but i well it, sorry post-crisis but it's still a great story guys if you hadn't read it find this digest or find that dc special number 29 so good so good all right moving on moving on all right. The next story is The Day That Dropped Out of Time. And this is a reprint from All-Star Comics number 35 from 1947. And I got to tell you, when the decision was made for me to recap this story, I was like, oh, thanks. I get to recap the 1947 story. And I'm not a huge Golden Age comic guy. I love the concepts from the Golden Age. I sometimes struggle reading Golden Age comics. This was a great damn comic. I enjoyed the hell out of this comic. It's 38 pages, and I was never bored. There is a ton of stuff in here. I apologize in advance. My recap is longer than I originally intended, just because so much happens. So uh, just to give you some of the credits that are not mentioned here, by the way, but I did some research. It's written by John Broom, and the artists include Erwin Hazen, Lee Elias, Paul Reenman, Joe Kubert, and Frank Harry. Here we go. So I'll do my recap. So... The story opens with a great splash page of several members sitting around a table. Wonder Woman's in the center, sadly, not as the leader, but as the secretary. And again, it leads us into the title, The Day That Dropped Out of Time. Uh, as the story goes on, Wonder Woman comes across a strange old shield that none of them recognize. This thing's encrusted with rust and, and age and, and stuff. And I, I guess she was cleaning out the attic or something. Anyway, it's ancient, and it has writing inscribed on it that only Wonder Woman recognizes because it's Macedonian. And it apparently concerns an adventure that none of them can remember. So Wonder Woman has borrowed a device from her mother called the Magic Sphere, which can reveal an object's past. The device analyzes the shield and on a screen displays an adventure of the JSA that none of them remember. Now you might ask, how does this shield show an adventure where the shield itself wasn't actually present? Don't ask, folks. Comic book science. Uh, so on the screen, we see the modern-day objects are disappearing and being replaced by their older counterparts, meaning like a modern-day train is going along and suddenly it's replaced by an old steam locomotive. Large modern airliners are being replaced by old biplanes. History is being rewritten and technology is regressing. Then we find out that Perdegaton, oh, you might know that name, uh, is an ambitious assistant of Professor Z. He has shot the professor and stolen his time machine. Perdegaton has then went back in time and changed the outcome of some crucial historical event. This change is causing modern-day items to begin to disappear around the world. All scientific knowledge is disappearing. History is changing slowly around everyone. The JSA are called to Professor Z's hospital room, because, again, he's been shot, where he explains about Perdegadon's plan. The JSA split up, and we follow the individual members. First up, we follow the Flash, as he searches for penicillin that has... He's searching for some penicillin that hasn't been erased from history, because uh, this medicine is needed to save Professor Z. Flash seeks out a specially buried time capsule... That that includes some penicillin in it, and it just so happens to be buried in this special cave system. It's important because these caves are unique, and they can apparently resist the changes in time. Yeah, apparently changes in the timeline don't affect things within this cave. Don't ask. Comic book science. Uh, Flash arrives at the cave to discover it also happens to be Predegaton's headquarters. He has stored massive stockpiles of weapons here in these caves so that they're not erased from history. Flash recovers the penicillin, but Predegaton and his army and his weapons all get away. 
Next, we follow the Atom as he battles Perdegaton's army as they try to rob gold from the Gotham Insurance Building, because that's where I think of to find gold as an insurance building. But uh, the Atom is locked into a ridiculous death trap, which is actually pretty funny, and Perdegaton gets away. Good news is that the Atom recovers some crucial information. Then we follow Hawkman, who protects the mayor of Gotham City from Predegaton and his cronies. Hawkman and the mayor also escape from another ludicrous death trap. Next, we follow Dr. Midnight as he rescues several crucial scientists from Predegaton's forces. And then finally, the JSA figure out uh, what crucial event in history Predegaton has changed. It's a, the Battle of Arbella in 331 B.C., so Green Lantern locates where the Professor Z's time machine is. He goes there, but Perdegaton attacks. Green Lantern is knocked out because of that pesky wood weakness, and Perdegaton sends Green Lantern to the future! He tries to send him 10,000 years in the future, but it all messes up, and Green Lantern only goes 10 years in the future. Uh, when he's there in the future, he teams up with the remains of this future JSA. Uh, ultimately, Green Lantern uses his ring to send himself and this ragtag future JSA back in time, back to this Battle of uh, Arbella, where time was changed. The heroes help set history back on the right course, much like Dr. Sam Beckett or the Voyagers. And once the battle's outcome returns to its proper history, the JSA and Predegaton fade away as if they never existed in that ancient time period in 331 BC, because history has been set back on its normal path. Uh, Perdegaton is still Professor Z's assistant uh, because history never changed and uh, that's why the modern JSA can't remember this adventure but Perdegaton does seem to have some hazy memory of it from a dream and it turns out this mysterious shield that started him on this whole quest came from Alexander at the Battle of Arbella he gave it to them as a thank you for helping him in the battle so even though history was never changed uh, therefore they never really went back they still have this shield big paradox but don't ask folks comic book science What'd you think of it, Rob? This is a lot of fun. You did a good job recapping because oh, a lot of stuff happens in the story. <laughs> and you managed to zip through it pretty well. Uh, a couple things. I, I mean, I like all the different uh, art chapters. Like, you know, mm -hmm. ones by Lee Elias, ones by Joe Kubert. The, the things, that's really cool. Um, per Degaton really is one of those villains that has gotten a lot farther than he ever should have just by being <laughs> a – just really by being a prick. Like, he just is <laughs> – He's just so determined that because I mean he has no special powers. I mean right. he's just a guy, mm -hmm. uh, but I mean he's managed. And and as much as I enjoyed the story, and I did, it is all worth it for the final panel where he's back at his lab and he's like, "Funny professor, I dreamed last night I was ruler of the world." Sigh. I wonder if I'll ever be anything but a lab assistant. And the response is, "Stop mumbling, Degaton, and wash these tubes like a good fellow." <laughs> I love the idea of like this world conqueror is just like, "Shut up!" I just, I love that entirely. That's just fantastic. But I mean, um, now it's a, it's fun. These JSA stories definitely did get a bit formulaic because it was a lot of break the team up into different right, chapters. Right. I mean, they were they did that in literally the first ever JSA adventure, All Star Comics number three. And here they are. This is what All Star Comics number like thirty seven or something. Uh, thirty five. Thirty five. Oh, it was so close. Here they are, thirty issues later, and they're still basically doing that. It's you know, okay, here's the team. All right, let's break up, and then we have everybody different adventures. But it's a lot of fun, and there's some historical stuff, and that's that's neat. And so I like the artwork. The the one it's um page seven of this story, which is page forty three of the digest. The little single shots of the heroes running. <laughs> I love so those. Cute. Those are just so cute. They all look, look they all kind of look like dwarves. Like they're really, right. really cute. So yeah, no, this is this is a lot of fun. And thematically it's kind of a cool idea to bring Perdegaton into because of course Perdegaton was the main villain of the, the first arc of the Ulster Squadron. That's a good point. That's a good point. Which, which you know, means credence to your theory that this was based a little on what was going on in that book. 
Well, it's it's interesting. I uh, predict. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that that I didn't I didn't put that together. Putting Predegaton in here makes a lot of sense. The thing of Predegaton, it, it's interesting. Is um, the trick with him is in each time he appears, the historical changes are always reversed. He always does some sort of time travel thing, and it always ends up reversed. So the adventure, there's always a paradox. The adventure never happened, and the JSA never remember it. You know, and you, that panel you love at the end where Dr. Professor C is like being a jerk to him, that happens in most of them. Yes. Most of the time, he is lay low, which is kind of nice. And again, the heroes always forget, which is interesting about this one is even though it's the very first one, there's a bit of a loophole in this one. Yes, the heroes don't remember it. However, the machine told them the story. So they don't have memories of themselves doing these things, but they have memories of watching it on the little TV, what the JSA did. Hmm. So the JSA do kind of have a memory of Perdegaton now for the first time. Uh, there's also some funny time travel stuff in this one, like the cave system, you know, that protects stuff from time changes, which is really weird. As a time travel buff, you know, that's sort of like my Doctor Who side really is, is angsty about that. Cause like, no, 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 time travel doesn't work like that. But the truth is, you know, time travel is all theoretical anyway. We don't really know. So who's, who's, who's to say paradoxes don't work that way? Yeah, so, you find yeah. yourself saying time travel doesn't work like that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, my anal re- the, the anal retentive time lord that lives inside me will allow it. Uh, I, I will allow that in this one. Uh, and I'd never read this story before. And certainly I had seen you, – you mentioned Perdegaton in All-Star Squadron. You know, he's in that awesome uh, Crisis on Earth Prime. You know, he showed up in later uh, 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 JSA stories. He's been around a bunch. I love the character. He's great. So reading the very first one was very exciting for me. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. And uh, let's see what else. There's a lot of continuing that Silver Age and Golden Age trope of just if you can bonk a hero on the back of the head, boom, they're done. The JSA gets taken out a lot by back being, being hit in the back of the head. They really need <laughs> to protect their rear flank better I tell you, they're just no, constantly being hit. No doubt about that. In fact, this, this issue is kind of funny because in all these little micro stories, again, Flash has his story, Hawkman his story, Dr. Minda, every single time they found, uh, they found Predegaton. So like that guy really gets around. I mean, the fact that he was able to go all these different places simultaneously is pretty impressive. You know, well done, sir. Uh, <laughs> I particularly like this scene in the Adam entry where Predicadon actually gets into an argument with his own henchmen. It's it's almost like subplot building, really. The henchmen are demanding money. Predicadon's like, no, we're doing this. And they're like, no, 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 we want money now. And they have a little falling out. It took time to have this subplot in the story, and I felt like that was actually sort of sophisticated storytelling for the Golden Age. I don't expect that kind of stuff. So every time I see little scenes like that in Golden Age comics, I'm always like, damn, I'm such a snob. I shouldn't be judging them by modern-day standards and think the Golden Age stories don't have this kind of stuff, because they do, and it's really impressive. Uh, Kyle Benning's really opened my eyes to uh, the, the nice storytelling in Golden Age stories. I need, to, I need to get out of my shell and read some more of those. Now, did, um, did Kubert draw the Hawkman Yes, section? Yes. Okay. That Because that, that's kind of my favorite. Out of all the artwork, that one, the, the, the detail on the tanks. The opening splash the, panel, which is a down shot of the tanks rolling yeah. under the New York streets, is really wonderful. Or Gotham streets is fantastic. Yeah. And all the faces look great. I mean, it just it, Predigaton, there's a profile shot of him on uh, – it's page 21 of the of that story, but 57 of the digest, a profile shot of him just like sort of smirking. It just it's really, really well illustrated, and I, I I love that. I fell in love with it. Now the Adam one has uh, let's see which one was no, it's the the Flash one has some really nice heavy thick inks. There's a lot of really nice ink uh, artwork in this entire thing. I I kind of like that they had to rely on so many artists. Now I don't know if 
that and maybe Al Gerding could tell us these things, but I don't know if that was more like, oh, let's go get the stable of artists from All American Comics versus uh, National Periodicals, because you know the JSA were owned by weren't they owned by some characters in one house, well, some characters in the other house? Yeah, I don't, I never fully understand the, the distinction there, but yeah, the JSA characters were the All American side of the company as opposed to Superman and Batman, which were the National side of the company. Well, yeah, but Superman and Batman were in the JSA though. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, yeah. I, again, I don't fully understand the, the distinction, but there seemed to be there was some level of distinction. And uh, if you take Wonder Woman out of this, this still works. Actually, no, because John Byrne put Wonder Woman in there for us, so this works in post crisis continuity. Actually, still. All right, it's good. So, stuff. I like it. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So good stuff. All right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, last one. This is a reprint from Brave and the Bold number sixty one, which is from nineteen sixty five. Actually going to correct myself or correct the book because the book credits brave and the bold number 61 it's actually issue number 62 because i went to go do my research on it I'm like this doesn't match what the heck's going on it's actually issue 62 uh and it is uh, starman and black canary team up in a story called the big superhero hunt and just just to give you a little history at this point the jsa it sort of faded away towards the end of the golden age of comics uh but at this point in the 60s in the 1960s again 1965 they were enjoying some renewed popularity because they were appearing every once in a while in the jla book so dc decided to try out some of these old characters in brave and the bull in this case they brought back uh again uh starman and black canary and they brought back a couple of their foes as well which included the sportsmaster and the huntress uh at this point we find out that these two these supervillains have become married which is kind of nice now, if you're confused about the Huntress, she has no relation to Helena Wayne or Helena Bertinelli, whichever way you see her. Uh, you might actually know this Huntress better by the name Tigress, which uh, she went by both at various points. All right. Writer Gardner Fox, artist Murphy Anderson. Woohoo! 24 pages. The story opens at a sportsman show. The sportsmaster has disguised himself as a statue and is now robbing the event. Black Canary is there in her civilian identity as Dinah Lance. She is wearing a very slinky red number, very sexy dress. And she's hot, folks. And she's there without her husband. Please note, she is married, boys. So Sportsmaster gets away uh, on these jet-propelled he, – he, ro he robs the place and gets away on these jet-propelled skis, uh, but Black, Black Canary follows him. Then we shift over to Ted Knight's estate, and you know, if you don't know, he's secretly Starman. Ted has apparently um, more money than he really knows what to do with because he is – constructed or had someone build for him because he's rich. He has other people do his work, obviously. He wasn't on the cover. Anyway, he's had replicas of famous observatories built in his garden. We're talking about giant telescopes. And Ted goes around these telescopes alone. And he's investigating trouble. He hears some screams. And he finds out that his old teammate, Wildcat, has been caged by his old foe, Huntress. Starman believes the Huntress uh, – I'm sorry. Starman battles the Huntress and some crazy birds. Then Sportsmaster shows up to help out the Huntress. But Black Canary is hot on his trail. Black Canary demonstrates what could really only be described as super strength as she lifts the Sportsmaster over, his head, over her head and spins him around like a toy. Uh, ultimately, our heroes are defeated and the bad guys escape with Wildcat as their prisoner. Dun, dun, dun. So Starman and Black Canary do wake up, and they have a moment together. Let's uh, put that in the parking lot, folks. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Anyway, and then they get back on the trail following Sportsmaster's jet skis to their hideout. There they rescue the Wildcat, uh, but they have to battle numerous wild animals that were also captured by the Huntress. Wildcat gets to punch a polar bear and boxes a kangaroo. Starman gets attacked by a panther and a boar, and Wildcat, I'm sorry, and, and Black Canary flips a gorilla. I'm not making this up. Afterwards, Wildcat has a lead on the bad guys, which was actually the bad guys' plan all along was to have Wildcat give them this lead. So Starman and Black Canary work really hard to ditch Wildcat at this point, and I mean really hard to get rid of him. Let's put a pin on that one too. We're going to talk about that. So Starman and Black Canary trace the villains to a golf course. They followed the lead Wildcat gave them. 
It was all part of the, the bad guy's plan. Sportsmaster and Huntress are riding on a flying putting green. Yes, you did hear that correctly. The entire putting green is floating over the course. Sportsmaster is knocking out the golfers by beating them unconscious with golf balls. And uh, rather, it's pretty funny. And he's also planning to steal the golf tournament prize money. The flying putting green is an elaborate trap set up uh, by the bad guys. But the heroes figured that out and spring the trap on the bad guys instead. The end. What do you think of this one, buddy? Uh, this is a lot of fun. This was actually one of the first back issues I ever bought at a comic really? store. Because I, I, the first comic store I ever shopped, that was called Eldorado Comics. And I was so uh, enamored of buying old comics that I just bought the cheapest stuff I could find. And they had <laughs> like a poor condition copy of this one. And I didn't really have a particularly great interest in Starman or Black Canary necessarily. But I was like, cool, comic from the 60s that I can buy for like $3, I'll buy it. And this is a lot of fun. I love, I love, I love, I love that shot of sportsman, sportsmaster, and Huntress golfing. Like that's right. just, just, just so goofy. Just the shot of like villains in costume. I mean, I know that they're they're committing a crime, but in, if you just look at that panel, it just looks like they're just recreating. I yeah. just love it. I just, I just, it's just such a silly idea. And Huntress's costume is so goofy. Uh, conversely, I like Sportsmasters. I love his just that simple black. Sheet over his face. Well, he, like, it's well, a, he changes though. It, the mask is the only thing that stays the same. Yeah, yeah, he's wearing different outfits. Yeah, it's like yeah. Uh, it, 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 not a great villain, but I love his look. Uh, yeah. And of course, and in retrospect, I mean, I don't want to jump into what you're going to talk about. Of course, this story was sort of refitted into continuity in a fun way, many, many decades later. But this is this is fun. It's just fun superheroics, and the artwork is nice by Murphy Anderson. Uh, this, uh, the storytelling is great. It's, it's you know, it, it, there's not, if you're not a huge fan of these two characters, I don't know how much this will make you go, oh, God, this was awesome. But it, it's a fun story. Yeah, and it, the, the it's very of its time. I mean, it's 1965. The men are bulky and ruffians. The women are, you know, super skinny and barely dressed and super hot. And it's it's you know sportsman's gimmicks you are just crack me up when he's dressed up as the golfer you know when he's when he's encased himself in clay to look like a statue you know and he's fishing to grab the trophy I mean just he is committed to the bit that guy and I love that about him and his mask is you mentioned his mask I'm glad you did it's so unique the only other person I can think of that ever had a mask like that was Grifter from the Wildcats I can't think of anyone else oh uh, yeah there you go that's right that's ever worn a mask like that and it's just so cool looking now. I can't. You called uh, Huntress's costume goofy. Yes. I mean, she's basically wearing, you know, a, a, a I don't know, some sort of animal print uh, one-piece bathing suit with a, a cheetah cowl and cape and little fuzzy boots, which is I. She's hot. Sorry, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. But <laughs> Murphy Anderson really did draw women beautiful. Sorry to harp on that. But so, what is up with? Black Canary having just hoisting Sportsmaster over her head, spinning him like a top and chucking him. I'm like, really? Yeah, I don't know how she can because comics. I guess I don't know how she can do that. I guess so. All right, so I, I was hinting at something, and, and so what happened was James Robinson during his Starman run, and you, you, you a minute ago you said there was a fun thing. I don't know that I would call this fun, but well, uh, he revealed clever. in Starman. Let me use a word clever. There we go. He revealed in Starman, the Starman comic, uh, that during a conversation with his dad, Jack Knight found out that his dad, uh, Ted Knight, actually had an affair with Black Canary during this time period when they were teaming up and doing stuff. And if you read this story, it is all freaking there. It is really on the page. I mean, I kind of hinted at the thing. You know, some of the, here's some of the dialogue. Starman stirs to find a vision of a blonde loveliness bent over him. And she is looking at him. She's got her hand on his head in a loving fashion as if they're 
you know, together. Um, Let's see. Here's here's a quote from the narrator. Their stories are are soon told. The Starman's cosmic rod pulses. Maybe that's not an innuendo. Maybe I'm just hearing it. But and then later on, Black Canary says, you know, it's good to be in action with you so soon after our first team up. I mean, they feel like he's carrying her around, you know, uh, holding her hand to fly around places. It's not Lois Lane style in his arms. He's holding her hand everywhere they go. They genuinely feel like a couple, even though they acknowledge earlier in the story she has a husband. And then the big thing is that for me is. When they rescue Wildcat, they're getting ready to go to this putting green thing, which is the flying putting green is the funniest damn thing. I want to see that animated because it would be hysterical. They should have done I, that in Caddyshack. It would have been great oh, to have geez. Rodney Dangerfield on there. Well, I'm pretty sure Sportsmaster made it into Justice League or Justice League Unlimited at some point. So seeing him on a flying, flying putting green would have been the best. Anyway, um, or maybe it was Batman Brave and the Bold. Either way. So Ted and Dinah are there, right, with Wildcat. And they tell him, no, you stay here at the bad guy's headquarters in case they come back. And he's like, no, I'm coming with you. He's like, no, 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 we got it. You need to stay here. It's very important you don't come with us. It's, basically, it is it is them saying they're going to go have uh, some time, to, some happy magic time together before they go fight the bad guys is what it really looks like. Because at no point do the bad guys go back there. Wildcat staying there has no point of the story. It is wasted effort to even have that discussion about Wildcat staying behind because they never go there. Wildcat does show up at the end of the story, but not has nothing to do with him staying behind. So when James Robinson says, you know, this is retroactive continuity, I, it is technically, but I could totally see it. It's here in the story. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's uh, well, and you don't like me using that There's, word. It's fun. Apparently, Rob thinks adultery is fun, folks. Well, it's. I think it's clever. I think it's. It, I thought Robinson's use of this story doesn't ruin this story's continuity in any way, but it also gives it an extra context that if you want to have it there, it's there. Yeah. And if you don't, it's not there. I think that's, okay. I thought that was really, very really clever. One detail I want to mention before I forget though, the panel on page 13 of the story, page 87 of the digest, which is Sportsmaster and Huntress all snuggled up as they're on the speedboat <laughs> panel, panel two. Yeah. That's, a, that's a great panel. Just watching the villains sort of enjoy their spoils. Like, that's kind of fun because usually the villains are all, like, psycho and Joker doesn't want to rob anything anymore. He just wants to, like, pull his face off. But <laughs> so we're seeing these two guys. Now, I haven't asked him because I haven't spoken to him in a little while. But I almost guarantee that James Tucker from Batman Brave and the Bold must have owned this comic or at least remembered it. Because in the episode Aquaman's Outrageous Adventure, when mm-hmm. they go cross-country... When they're in the RV, at one point, Aquaman looks out the side and he sees in another car, Sportsmaster and Hunter is on vacation. Right. And this panel is literally done in animated form. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. And then you, then you pan to the back and you see that they have a kid, which is like, like a little mini Huntress, and she looks miserable. She's bored. She's a bored teenager. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this panel in pan, panel two is quite literally transferred into animation. So that's got to be where they got it from. Because well, that's of, awesome. of that's all fantastic. the villains for Aquaman to happen to see outside the side of his RV, it's these two morts? Like, what <laughs> the hell? So that, that has got to be a nod to this comic from James Tucker. Well, it probably is. And if you think about it, in, in, in the history of DC supervillains, you go, okay, Aquaman and Mera are married, right? They've got their family. Who can they use in the story? Who else? What, what's what counterpoint? What supervillains are married that they can well, use? True, There's yeah. not a lot of them out there. That's true. I mean, and these two are very famously married because they do have a child. And I want to say it is a, a girl who takes on the name Tigress, I want to say. Because yep. I think she fought the JSA later. But uh, 
it's super fun. I love the Sportsmaster and uh, Huntress. They're just adorable together. They're adorbs, as my daughter would mm-hmm. say. And you can't beat on page 16 of the story or 90 of the digest uh, of Wildcat punching a polar bear. That's just – that's <laughs> you just can't get that every day. <laughs> So I enjoyed it. I think I enjoyed the JSA story a little more, the uh, the the woman Predegaton, mm-hmm. than this one. I mean, clearly the standout is the origin of the J- JSA. That's the standout of the issue. But I, I want to say I, I think my second favorite is the Predegaton one, and then this one. It's not to say this is a bad story, uh, the the Starman and Black Canary, but it's uh, it's, it's still fun. I enjoyed it. Oof, that's it. Hundred pages, man. Yeah, it's a great book. Oh, we should mention just before we sign off the uh, back cover. Which mm. features uh, a reprint of the two covers, uh, yep. because uh, and and then the redrawn the header from the Starman Black Canary story features the little profile shots of the heroes and villains looking at each other. And here Perez has redrawn it. As you said, that's got to be Perez. Yeah, yeah, it's Perez. Except he makes them scowling, which is great. Yeah. Huntress is like, yeah, which is just <laughs> a really great little detail. It's a really nice. It's you know very basic cover just telling you what you're going to get, but it's, it's really very handsome. And again, I love the fact that they asked Perez to draw those little heads. Like that's a nice yeah. little detail. This <laughs> is the, a great digest. This is one, this is really one of my all time favorites. This is a great collection. This is everything a digest should be, you know? Now, when Rob first suggested we do the JSA digest, cause there is another JSA digest. Yes, there is. I was all excited. Cause I thought we were going to do the other one. Cause the other one's got a reprint of my beloved, uh, Marty Fate. Pascal, yes. Walt Simonson, Dr. Fate story. And uh, there's something else in that one that's great too. I can't remember. That's, that's a good collection. That's a really good book too. That's a really that is good a really book. good. Book. Both yeah. JSA books were outstanding. These are really terrific. And this is again, this is for 95 cents. What a deal! Yeah. And you can probably find it on eBay still. You know, someone's going to be selling these because they're pretty common. These two particular digests. I would say you'll probably find it on eBay. You'll probably get it for about five bucks. Pfft, heck of a bargain considering modern comics are two ninety nine or three ninety nine already. So hundred pages for this, it is absolutely worth it. And go to the dollar store and get a pair of readers before you pick it up, folks. I would say go get it now before our show drives the price up. That could be the case. That could be the case. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. Folks, uh, we're going to continue to put these out every so often. I mean, you're going to get a good handful of them every year, I think it's fair to say. Yep. And and we're excited about it. We're, we're really loving this project. Now, considering I bought, as I mentioned, 33 of these things, Rob, I'm going to be on your butt to, to get these things done. I'm telling you. That's okay with me. I wouldn't have proposed the show if I didn't want to do it. And just said, we really got a great response. I I partly did this out of like, well, we have treasury casts. We should do digest casts. I didn't put a whole lot of, as usual, I didn't put a lot of thought behind (laughs) it. But man, people really got excited and and, uh, that suggests that the digests are way more beloved than I really would have thought. So uh, yeah, I'm look forward to to doing more of them because there's a lot of great stuff. A lot of really, really cool stuff out there in in these pages. Well, Rob picked this digest, so I get to pick the next digest. So next time we're going to be covering from Marvel Transformers number one digest. I'm just kidding. I wouldn't do that to Rob. Uh, <laughs> Rob's heart just stopped for a second there, folks. <laughs> I, uh, I actually I got to put I got to think about it. I'm going to have to go through these digests and figure out which one I want to pick for number for episode number two because uh, I put it out there on Twitter and I said, Hey, folks, which one should we cover? You know, what are your favorites? And I. Uh, Every digest under the sun. We've got 120 of these things. I, got, I think I got 120 different answers. So <laughs> I sure highly that. doubt anyone said cover funny stuff. I really uh, doubt anyone said. Could be. I don't know. Binky. There's a lot of Binky. There's a lot of Binky. I know Chris Franco, big fan of the Super Juniors. That's a big one that he's he's been on. So 
<laughs> well, I'm going to crawl through. It's going to be a DC one next time. And I'm going to crawl through my digest and figure out which one I want to do. And we'll let you guys know in advance so you can pick it up. So watch our social media. But for right now, the best thing to do is head over to our website, uh, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can go out there, leave comments on this post. Look for Digest Cast and leave the comments on the post. We would love to hear from you. We will cover listener feedback from time mm-hmm. to time. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll also put some scans up here. Now, I don't know if we'll be able to put scans from the actual Digest or the original story. Yes, I don't know yes, we will. Be, yes, we will. Oh, okay. So you will see scans up on the page. I'll make sure they're really small uh, just to be realistic. <laughs> and uh, so – that's going to see you can find my friend Rob out on the social medias. Rob, tell him all your uh, 15 Twitter handles. I'm going to go to the grocery store real quick. We, <laughs> we don't need to do that. You can just – the main Twitter feed for us is FW Podcasts. Perfect. And also on Facebook, we have a Fire and Water Podcast page. So look that up. Folks, uh, I guess that's going to do it. Rob, we need some kind of tagline. Um, yeah, we don't, have a, we don't have a real sign-off yet for, uh, for the Digest cast. So we'll have to well, Until next time, I think it's fair to say, folks, just remember, big things come in small packages.